races. We can um, a native citizen can be of any perceived race, right, and still be a tribal citizen, um, a legitimate tribal citizen. So race is not, a, you know, we we are native nations. They are multiracial in appearance, generally. So, okay, we have another caller. Thank you, Greg, for calling in again. So, okay. uh, Susanna. Bye bye. Hi, Susanna. We just have a few minutes. Love to hear from you. You address. Um, the uranium mining on the Navajo Nation, and now they're trying to push small nuclear reactors as the next best thing for climate change. Yes, so I am working, my next book um, with Tory House is going to be about uranium mining and, and nuclear power on Indian land, and it's called, it's, uh, the title is Letters to Oppenheimer from the Fourth World. And um, I am looking at uranium mining. I mean, my grandfather was a uranium miner um, in Cameron on the Navajo Nation. Um, the uh, and also the issue of nuclear power. We'll be looking at places like um, oh, uh, Prairie Island uh, in in Minnesota. The reservation there has a, a nuclear power plant adjacent to it. And and also right now there, um, PG&E in California. Um, are um, basically decommissioning uh, the uh, Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant and, it, and working with the Chumash uh, tribes to be able to, um, to to return the land to them. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's a real issue. I, I don't. I'm really and, and I'm very much con- very concerned about Biden putting nuclear power in the 30 by 30 plan to reduce carbon emissions. Um, so. I think that's the new economy. I'm done. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, and I look forward to uh, talking to you next week. Jack and Keeler, and have a great week. You're listening, You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 11 a.m. ...informs your sensibility as a person and a writer. You know, I... It's, it's a great question, and I I don't know if I'd know how much if I hadn't moved to Texas when I was in my early 40s. And the thing about Texans is that they have a real sense of cultural identity as a state, and yeah. I resisted that notion early on. Huh. Um, I don't know whether Oregonians do, because the, the, I was born in Boston, and then my family moved to Portland when I was less than a year old, and we lived there and in England and moved back to um, Boston to Newton when I was seven and a half. And my brother, who's two and a half years older than me, thinks of himself as a West Coast person. He does not have a New England identity. Me, I think I am a New Englander. I'm kind of crabby. Even when I'm approving of things, I kind of yell about them. Um, <laughs> I I like New England things. I like being cold by the ocean and eating big stodgy pots of things. Um I like uh I like the little bit of you know I'm trying to think of a good word. I was about to say reticence, that's um not right. I was gonna it really is sort of like a feeling of being uptight. Like I approve of being slightly uptight about things. Or I uptight and public and not uptight uh, in 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 private but i sorry go ahead no no you go ahead yeah i, I just i i think i've leaned into my new englandness since i moved away from new england yeah i feel like in your writing i get that sense of what you're kind of speaking to there's this kind of like bad weather buttoned up but there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the living room kind of feeling it just and, and maybe it, yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely present and sort of, it feels like the weather around a lot of the stories that I that I love that you've written, so, okay. Um, so shifting a little bit to your novels, one of the things I noticed about the novels is that each of them has a particular historical era um, of past centuries, vaudeville, Cape Cod in 1950, early 20th century, as opposed to your shorter fiction, which is set in in the past as well as the present day. What draws you to a historical era enough to make it the context to tell the story of a life or multiple lives? Uh, incompetence, maybe, because you're, you're totally right. That is, I write about contemporary things in short stories and history in novels. And 
part of that is just because whenever I start a novel, I start writing in the present day and then I think, oh, I gotta really dig into this one character and then I've written something that's in the past. All three of my novels, my published novels, have started as contemporary novels and then I get waylaid. And for The Giant's House, it was gonna be entirely about this house museum. And then I got interested in a, in a character who I was just an aside in the draft. Um, and that was true for Niagara Falls all over again as well, that I sort of went into family history. And even Bolaway, I was headed towards the present day and I just never got there. But I, I think I like it because I, I, I like thinking about history as a, as a way to look at a whole life. Mm -hmm. And I like to think about retrospection. For that's a word. I don't know whether that's a word. Retrospectiveness. Looking back. I, I like that that sense of characters. That is my phone, which I did not turn off. <laughs> um, let me just turn it down. I like to think of characters at the end of their lives thinking about the sweep of their lives. I can see how that would start, you know, even if you meant to stay in the present, you would always end up, because if you're looking at that sort of back over your shoulder, that's what's going to appear to you. Yeah? Yeah. Is that, I know, always want to write one of those stories about, like, a bunch of people in a country house over a weekend, but I, I think it's probably not in the cards. Yeah. The Ann Patchett setup, lock people in one place and then let the tension rise. Exactly. Start with a great party. And then an opera singer. Yeah, exactly. So you intend to do that, and then you end up exploring bowling in the nineteenth century. Exactly. <laughs> Practically, that's true. I do. I do very little on purpose when I write. It's one of the things I love about when you talk about writing. You're so casual about. I have no idea. It's the back of my mind. It just falls out. That's, yeah. I mean, I feel like there are certain things I can do on purpose, but I can't make any decisions about anything I write without actually writing it. Yeah, I, I love that about this sort of, it sort of teaches a kind of a, you have to trust what's coming out of your subconscious or you won't be surprised. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it exactly. Because it sounds like what happens is you just let your mind take that hard left, whatever it is, once you connect with a certain character and then it opens to you that's part of what you're saying is you end up in the era you end up in yeah i think that that's it um it feels like sometimes like i've i'm i'm cleaning a giant oil painting mm. and i don't actually i think i know what it's a painting of but the more work i do the more i understand that it's not it's not a portrait of a lady it's you know a battlefield or i mean i don't know why but i find it really reassuring that you uncover what something is because I think it gets away from the um, intimidating idea of the genius Elizabeth McCracken constructs this amazing architecture rather than I just start cleaning the painting and then I find out and then I'm willing to stay in it yeah yeah that's what it feels like to me yeah I mean, it just to make a little bit of a shift. I've heard you make this distinction. I was listening to your interview with Yi Yun Lee, and the and the difference between accurate fiction and fiction that you can fall into. And you were trying for a better word than realism, but I think we only have realism to call it. Um, can you describe that distinction when you separate between what you're calling accurate fiction and realistic fiction that you can fall into? Yeah, absolutely. And I. It's not, in my mind, it's not realism because there is a lot of realism that I think you can fall into. That you are in the in the room and in the backyards of the characters, and you apprehend them, and you're you are inside of the story. Mm -hmm. I tend to think of accurate fiction as being, and some people love accurate fiction. I don't mean it at all as as a slam on this kind of book. Not that something could happen, but you have the sense when you read it that it probably did. 
not that it's strictly autobiographical, but it has the feeling of life recorded as opposed to depicted, if that makes sense. Well, I think part of my question about it was, are you talking about the distance where the reader feels from the material where you know there is a camera? Is it like that? Versus you're immersed in it? I guess that was what I was hoping you could clarify. Yeah, that's part of it. That's certainly part of it. Hmm. Um, I guess the writer I'm going to pause and, and, and mention, and she is, you know, she's a brilliant writer and people love her work. And it does not ring with me as Rachel Cusk. Because when I read Rachel Cusk, I'm full of admiration for her skill. And I often think, oh, I'm sure she's describing this just the way it happened. But I don't pass through the surface of her work into a strange world. And by strange world, I, again, I, that can be a realistic yeah. world, but her work, and I, I'll mention Rachel Cuss just because, you know, she can take it. She's <laughs> beloved and famous. And, um, yeah, yeah, for me, that that's a difference. And again, it's, you know, this is a readerly preference of mine. I'm not saying yeah. oh, I hate yeah. books like that. Yeah. Um, I can read them with admiration, but they don't, they don't strike the gong of my soul. Yeah, I guess I wanted to sort of go deeper into that idea a little bit in in a craft sense in terms of how do you think when it does, when you fall into it and you're not the same at the end of the book, what do you, how do you think you catch the how it's done? Oh, to a huge extent, when I read work I love, I don't really know how it's done. Yeah. Sometimes I, maybe sometimes I can figure it out. But for me, you know, they always, the wisdom is always, if you want to be a writer, you have to read a ton. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. You have to read a ton. But I think the lessons of fiction, for me, because anytime you hear a writer going, saying something with great certainty, <laughs> all, they, all they really mean is, this is how I feel. Right. How I feel is those lessons are subconscious. That I have that feeling when I am reading um, a Lucia Berlin story oh. and it just, I just love it and yeah. I can't see what she's doing but I know that it's working yeah. and that it's very particular to her, whatever she's doing to me. Yeah, yeah. And then I am inclined to write fiction afterwards. And sometimes it's, when I was younger, it was more like I would then write like a bad Grace Paley story and I would go, oh, that's nothing like what I intended. And now I will try to write a bad or good story of my own as opposed to somebody else's. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking of it in, more, in a sort of a granular way because of some of the, my favorite stuff I've read about you talking about writing is when you speak about your love of a great sentence. And that that's what I was thinking because the sort of pageantry of a really beautiful sentence that delivers something underneath everything that it's saying. Um, I love the way you talked about, I, I read you speaking about that as a way of kind of having the reader absorb into their subconscious something that's underneath, but somehow captured in, in a really good sentence. Yeah, I, I'm sure part of it is, I mean, nobody becomes a writer unless they really are terribly vain about some aspect. <laughs> and I am very vain about my sentences. I probably am because it feels it feels okay to confess that, to sort of say, oh, I love, you know, I love compliments about my sentences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, if I could stand beside somebody reading my work and go, oh, what'd you think of that one? That's good, huh? <laughs> like like that metaphor, don't you? <laughs> but yeah, it's also the sentence level is also where I can most easily take pleasure when I'm when I'm grappling with other stuff. 
with the material itself with the material itself or trying to get a character mm. on the page and trying to get a character to actually do things and to know where i'm going and even just sort of grappling you know as everybody does especially writing novels more than short stories oh my gosh this is taking so long is it worth it is anybody going to read it mm -hmm. I can still write a sentence and go, well, that's a good sentence. As like a rest stop in all yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, I like what you're saying. Um, do you feel like you know when you hit it? Like when, when one of your sentences does multiple levels of work? I mean, I've read in your editing process, you're like, I'll give it a few tries. And if it doesn't work, I throw the sentence out. Yeah, I sort of feel like, I feel like I should say, oh, I don't know, it's so mysterious to me. I'm listening to art. Uh, and yet for sentences, yeah, I sometimes do. Although often the stories that I think that give me the most pleasure are not the ones that give other people the most pleasure, which is absolutely fine. I once gave, gave a friend a story to read and I said, I think this is the funniest sentence I've ever um, written in it. And she guessed a bunch of sentences. I was like, no. And then she said, can you narrow it down to a page? And I said, sure, it's on this page. And I had to tell her which sentence it was. And she didn't think it was that funny in the end, which was, you know, it was fine. She, she listed a lot of other sentences. It was very canny of me. I got a lot of compliments on other sentences that she said, is it this sentence? It's really funny. So some, I, I think I, sometimes I do know, but I don't. I don't slave over language. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really work and worry over where the commas are or word choice. I usually try to get it right the first time. I, I cut out, you know, paragraphs and pages and chapters and occasionally entire books, but I don't fiddle with the language endlessly. So when, when I read about you talking about like judging a contest or, you know, choosing students for the MFA, one of the things you said is I look for um, a writer being deeply invested and surprised by the sentences you read. Do you remember saying that? No, but, but it sounds like me. I was going to say, does it sound <laughs> so, Sometimes somebody will say something back and you'll go, what? No, a lunatic said that. But yes, no, I, I agree with that. So at the, it, it seems like just thinking about sentences, I was trying to picture what you, when you're, when you're reading through somebody's work, what gives you the feeling that this surprised the writer that, you know, that they, that, or, or how you decide this person is very deeply invested in this versus someone who isn't, this is, this is, someone was asking you about how you choose candidates. Yeah. It's kind of ineffable, but I think you can mm -hmm. tell when somebody is interested in what they're writing about. Yeah. That there's, I, I can't point to what spark is. I was just teaching my undergraduates and one of the things that I said was, you know, you have to find something you're interested in, interested in writing about because otherwise you'll write, and I get these stories when I teach undergraduates a lot, about somebody riding the bus. And it's by a good writer and the sentences are good, but they're not actually interested in riding the bus. They were just casting around for an idea. But I think you could write a really good story about somebody riding the bus if you were, in fact, interested in what it means to ride the bus, um, what it means to the characters to be on the bus. You could absolutely do it. And that may be why, sort of in, in general, particularly with young writers, I think the write-what-you-know advice is not great because they think, okay, it has to be something I've experienced. I've experienced the bus. So that's what I'll do. But but they should write about what they're interested in. Yeah. I, there's another quote by you or thing I was listening to where you said, I was interested in something. And so I started to write about it as a novel. And then I realized I'm interested in it, but I'm not obsessed with it. I can't sustain it. So is that part of what you're talking about is the depth of the um, devotion to it or the depth of being interested in something? Yeah, that you write about something you want to get to the bottom of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
just to follow up on that, I often hear writers say that they um, only saw way after they wrote something what their central obsessions are in their life. And one of the funny things you said in another interview was that after you finished Souvenir Museum, one of your friends said, are you proud of this book? And you said, I have no idea. Ask me in five years. <laughs> I love that. But it made me curious about you sort of looking back at your at, at your work over because you have a body of work like have you do you agree with that idea that that you find out what your kind of central obsessions are further down the road when when you look back do, does it feel like a different do you have a different perspective on work now, on your work that's had some time pass oh i i definitely do i probably would never think about my own work as a way to see like what i was thinking at the time Mm. Um, because I, I, it sent a chill up my spine to think, could I see what I was obsessed with accidentally? Well, oh my I gosh, what if it's dirty? <laughs> um, oh, you New Englander! That's uh, right. <laughs> no, we must be buttoned up. My standard joke here is that um, you know the 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 song of the University of Texas is "The Eyes of Texas Are Upon You," and I always say in Massachusetts, our song is. The eyes of Massachusetts are politely averted. Don't look at me. I'm in Boston. Exactly. Don't look at me. Don't tell me what you know about me when you read my fiction. But it, it is, is. No, you go ahead. It is. It is. It is strange to think about stuff that I've written long ago, and I don't go back and read things. Though maybe it's still mm. been six or seven years. I was somewhere and I decided to read a story from my first collection aloud. Mm -hmm. And it was a story that I'd read out a ton of times when it came out in 1993. Uh, and what was strange is that I had a hard time reading it because the rhythms of my sentences were different. Oh, because you had changed. Because I, yeah, but just my ear had changed. And I don't think, I feel really strongly, you know, if you, if you want to be a writer, it's good to change. You don't necessarily improve, but it's good not to keep doing the same thing that you've always been doing. And that seems really important to me. But it was it was it was weird to not be able to access the way yeah. I wrote sentences naturally. I'd read it on the page before I read it out loud, but then when I went to read it out loud, I was like, "What?" It was like I was trying to dance a cha-cha to yeah. a foxtrot. Yeah, it, it, it's probably it's the same. It makes thing. total sense that stylistically or musically, the music of what you wrote is what had changed, right? Like you wrote in a different melody. Yes, in, in part of your evolution. I guess I'm asking about the other side of it as well, about the sort of like deep life questions that you wrangle with. Do you go? Can you look back and find them as a as a thread that goes through it. That's what I've heard other, like I've interviewed some other writers who've been like, yeah, it wasn't until 10 years after that mm -hmm. I realized all I ever talk about is my father dressed up as other character. That's what, I, that's what I'm kind of asking about is, because people say you have to go back to your same central obsessions and you never find an answer. It's guess what I get to wrangle with again in my life. That's what I was wondering about. Just think talking about retrospection, about looking, looking backward at your stuff. Yeah, I know Ann, Ann Patchett says she always ends up writing about a group of strangers who form a family in some way. Yeah. Um, and that's one of those things that he, she's written radically different novels on that on that subject. And I think she's she's said that she tries to write a different kind of novel and then she writes that that novel. Yeah. Um I certainly write about eccentrics or people who are who are out of the norm and I guess that's the 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 thing that I have realized much more strongly and and really did not hold my back on in once I started writing bowl away is that is that I'm naturally drawn to eccentricity and I some sometimes people have used the word sort of outsider for my characters, but that doesn't feel quite right to me because many of them are are not at all outside of society. They're just 
bloody-minded and strangely behaved. Do you tie that back into you? To where your mind goes in your life or how, how you live your life? My, I come from a very eccentric family and full of people who are bloody-minded and sometimes strangely behaved. Not badly behaved, but strangely behaved. And a highfalutin, right? Isn't mom was an editor, dad was a professor, right? Uh, my father was a university. Uh, he was the assistant to the president of Boston University, and he did he did he taught yeah many years as well. I don't think they're high. I don't think they were highfalutin. Yeah, that's the wrong adjective. I'm, I guess that what I'm trying to say is the the. Um, sorry, I'm not coming up with the right word, but. They're part of a system, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. In, in yeah. our New England, yeah. Yep. So I'm thinking proper. That's what I'm thinking. Proper. Proper. <laughs> not but proper. then you're. No, I didn't know. But what I'm saying is, there's there's a kind of proper exterior, but then what you're yeah. trying to is the like you're saying. Oh yeah, yeah. you know absolutely. They they were not. Oh like yeah, I, I see. I totally see what you mean. You mean yeah, they were not. Um. They were they were upright members of society. They didn't. You know, they, they held jobs and and uh, yeah, and had friends and yeah. not not ex not excluded by polite society, but also both quite unusual people and in in wonderful ways. Yeah, yeah, and so that's what I mean is is that kind of the thematic thing through it, the context of which you bring your characters through, it gets nice and strange, and eccentric, like you're saying, like within a kind of proper New England feel that's that's sort of what I was asking you about is did you notice that um that's where your eye is drawn within these contexts as your things come out yeah I think it I think it yeah I think it must be but I th I think when I was first writing I would have just said you know I'm just writing about the people I'm interested in and I'm writing one character after another yeah yeah I think no, I'm, I'm writing I'm writing about weirdos Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so when I think about, you know, one of the things that I think about is sort of following the trajectory of, like, if we move from Thunderstruck and other stories, in and then, which is all grief and loss and death, and you, you know, I've read that you talked about it's about the fears for our children, right? And that, and that that was that moment was when you had young children is when you write all those stories. Yeah. And then you've talked about a um, souvenir museum being like, it's a lighter book. Like I came out from the dark cloud and I wrote something that was, I don't know if you'd say weirder, but um, you know, it, do you think that that reflects the state of your place in the world shifting in your movement? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I, Cause the thing is about having little kids is that everything it doesn't necessarily feel like an emergency, but it feels like there's an emergency right around the corner at all yeah. times. Yeah. The vulnerability. And, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, so I, I wrote those stories very much. I wrote them because I had written a novel that my editor didn't want and turned down after a couple of years of working on it. Wow. Um, and I felt very, very bad about it for a while. Uh, and then I, and she said, but I'll, I'll publish a collection of short stories. And so I had... I'd want, there's one story in that collection that's older that I'd written when I was working as a public librarian about a public library. And I sort of pulled a couple of stories out of the flaming wreckage of the novel. And then I wrote a lot of stories pretty quickly for that collection. And so more than, maybe more than some collections, it has the feel of everything that I was concerned about while I was writing those stories. It wasn't a story that was written over many years. It was, I mean, a story collection that was written over many years. It was, it was written within months, apart from Juliet, which is the story that takes place in a public library. And then even the stories I pulled from the wreckage of the novel were heavily revised uh, and rethought and have you couldn't tell that they're from the, the same book anymore. Mm. Wow. 
So can we stay with the souvenir musician for a bit? Musician, yeah. souvenir museum um, specifically. It, one of the things I, I know other people have asked you about this, but it traveled so far out into the world right before you were landlocked in Texas. <laughs> um, did, did traveling just before a lockdown inspire the stories? Yeah, I think it was that just about any time I travel and I'm no longer, I teach at the University of Texas, which I really love. Um, I love teaching. But my, when I'm teaching, my head is filled with other people's sentences and plot lines. And then at a break, I travel and suddenly my brain is operating in a different way. And I'm thinking I could write a story about this. I could write a story about that. And I ended up doing it much more consciously that there are a bunch of stories in that collection where the events happen to me but none of the emotions and none of the characters that I just sort of use them as a, as the taxidermy armature that's inside the, inside the animal to give it shape that looks nothing like the right, animal. It's not autobiographical, but no. Yeah. Not somebody at all. really did say cut the cheese. It was me. I've read that story three times. I cannot get through that sentence. <laughs> That story of all the stories, and oh, again, I hope they make a movie, Elizabeth. <laughs> none of the characters are actual people I know. Yeah. But that story has the highest level of anecdotes that actually happened. Like McCracken reality. Yes. Absolutely. And I was at a I was at a wedding in Ireland and they said the bride and groom will now cut the cheese and I burst out laughing and that was how I discovered that that's only an American expression and I was the only American there but I stopped laughing very quickly okay well, yeah I think you were invited to stop laughing it sounds like by the quiet room yeah <laughs> yes I was a what I thought it was a good joke I love it um so can we talk about everybody's favorite couple Jack and Sadie Yes. Okay. So we meet them in one story, and then we get these subsequent links, linked stories. And you've said several times in interviews that those subsequent stories came pretty quickly to you. Yeah? So my question was, did you know you wanted to take Jack and Sadie across all these stories? Or did the idea or the scenario of the story come to you, and then you decided to make them the characters that deal with it did you decide to do the link stories or well so what happened was and this really makes me sound incredibly unprofessional oh yay is that my wonderful editor helen atzma wrote i was working on something else i was working on the i have a novel coming out in october and i was i was working on that and she said oh by the way are you going to get the story collection in by the deadline and i went the what now? What deadline? And I <clears throat> I wrote one story after I got that email, which is not connected. And then I got run over by the semester. And then I had this like unbelievably small amount of time. She extended the deadline by a, a month and a half, I think. And I started writing and I realized from a point of pure practicality that it would be impossible for me to write five unconnected short stories in the time that I had left. Like that it wasn't possible. And I really love connected short stories. I love to read them. And I thought, all right, I'm gonna give it a try. But the other thing was that in order to do that, I, I had to write them as separate stories. Like I didn't, in my mind, I did not sketch out where they were going because I think that if I had done that, it, they would have read as a novella or they would have, um, the thing about connected short stories is if you're not careful, you can end up with not the best parts of a short story and the best parts of a novel, but the worst sides of both of them. And so I, I drafted, I drafted each story in about a day. And then I tinkered with them. Tinkered is the wrong word. Like I worked on them. Um, uh, cause I, cause they did change, but it, I, I worked on them together. Uh, and I've never done that before. I've never written drafts of short stories 
so quickly or over such a short period of time. Mm. And it was fun. I mean, to some extent, because, you know, like a hanging concentrates the mind. I was like, I really, I got to do this. But also because it felt sort of improvisational in a way that writing doesn't often feel to me. That I just told myself as I was drafting them, I just have to get it on the page. When I get it on the page, then I'll know what it is, and then I can go back and fix it. And they did they did shift a lot, and some of them were harder to get right than others of them were. But it, it brings a sort of a craft question up for me. One of the things that Yi Yun Lee was saying that's, is that if you, when you read them in total, they end up telling a novel's worth of <clears throat> progression of, of a couple through life. And um, what is it you think that, you just mentioned it briefly, but you were saying the best parts of a short story to keep in, like that level of compression, but we still see this couple move across time, right? From the meeting until, the, I think, the is it the last one? My, dar my darling is the one where they're getting married, right? So this right. progression, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, what do you see as, what makes that successful? doesn't have to be in reference to these four in particular, but when people do it right, I was wondering, because it's so beautifully done in your book. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, that's one of those things. It's much easier for me to talk about somebody else's work. I think part of it is, is that it feels like you don't... There's something kind of thrilling about being a reader and jumping over years and characters um, when a writer just says, all right, you know that? Now it's 30 years later. And I love that as a reader. I love it in novels as well and within short stories. And when connected stories work well, there's sort of a pleasure in going, now forget what you know from that last story, because this is a completely different angle. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry how they got here, but this person will be familiar to you in an interesting way. Yeah. I don't, I mean, maybe it's, I like them because they can be a little bit like life when you see somebody after 30 years and you think both about how alike they are to their young self, their teenage self or their 20 year old self mm -hmm. and also how utterly changed. And that can be moving and heartbreaking in real life. And I think when it works in connected stories or in fiction, that does that in general there is that sense of of seeing how somebody has panned out how their life has worked upon them and how they have moved through life yeah it's a beautiful way to talk about how what get sort of memory and nostalgia when it's done correctly can jump into now we're in this present moment and i guess maybe what part of what i hear is you successfully bring the person forward in a believable way yeah. that, that we can sign up for. Yeah, and it's not about retrospection in that case. It's about time passing. Mm -hmm. But it's not about looking back, and I like that. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to say it. Yeah. Well, um, gonna jump a little bit. I wrote to you about this on Twitter you had said in a fit of peak i wrote a ten thousand word story now <laughs> i know it's in progress and we need to stay outside of the locked door of your writing studio but since um since i feel like we can maybe peek in the window if you'll let us about can you talk to me about the process of that of something creating some reaction in you and that turning into a story is that something you can talk about Sure, and I can't even remember. It was a and now I can't remember what I was mad about. There was something, something that irritated me. That's not about the story itself, but that I just thought, as I often do, if I'm particularly if I'm irritated about something in the um, in my writing life, or sometimes my university life too. Actually, if I'm if I'm think that's not right, that. I try to take that energy and go to write if I can, because otherwise it's the sort of irritation where all you do is walk around muttering to yourself in your head and doesn't achieve anything. I often, my, it's, I feel it's a great motivation, pointless emotion, um, to try to channel it into actually writing as opposed to 
having arguments with strangers or people who I know well. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I was ticked off and I wrote a really long short story, which I haven't quite gotten right yet. There's one section of it that I'm still trying to fiddle with. It was more about the being bothered. It wasn't the topic. It was just the aggravation led you to productivity. Yes. It's because I'm a New Englander. We're outside the locked door of your, of your writing studio. <laughs> New Englanders are often irritated, but we also feel we should be working harder. <laughs> Reminds me of this thing Louise Erdard said once where they said, you know, how did your background make you a good writer? What, what about your history made you a good writer? And she said, severe repression. <laughs> yeah. All right. So can you can you tell us anything about your upcoming novel what would you like to tell sure it's um it's a, a it's a very little novel <laughs> it's probably i'm laughing because we were talking about accurate fiction it's probably more accurate than most of the stuff that i write mm. um and it is about a woman in who's in london who's remembering her mother who has recently died and in fact, I was in, when I started writing it, I was in London thinking about my mother who had recently died. And it's, I'm pausing because I'm trying to figure out the right word to describe it. I don't actually know what autofiction is. Um, and it's not that it's autobiographical. I guess it is autobiographical, but a lot of it is about, um, what makes something fiction and what makes something a memoir. That's sort of one of the topics of it as a novel, which I'm insisting. Big open topic right now, isn't a it? Novel, yeah. Yeah. And I wrote it, I wrote it mostly in 2019, the first draft of it. This and is it a was, different book than the, than the one your publisher was mean about? Oh yeah, that's book, that. That's that far, far in the past. It's far, far in the past. <laughs> Um, and a different publisher. Yeah. Um, Can you I, give us a hint about historical era? Is it present day? 2019. Oh, it's set in 2019. Yeah. Ah. And there are scenes that before You've done that. It. Yes, it is my. It is a contemporary-ish novel. And then, of course, I wrote in 2019. I'm like, this is really up to date. And then something happened to render it into history into the old era like absolutely that's wild it was it was actually quite strange and interesting to have history sealed off a few months after the events of the novel so i couldn't i everything that happens in it could not be happening now because oh. you know there's somebody walking around and going to the theater and going to museums and thinking about the past and yeah and it, it, it is, it's strange to understand that when, and it's a little like the short stories in that I, you know, many of the events, not all of the events in the 2019 part of the novel actually happened to me, uh, but I didn't realize, a lot of them did, and I didn't realize as I was doing them that it would be the last time that I would walk around a foreign city by myself in that way sort of idly thinking and not fearing strangers and not worrying about thinking. elevators yeah it w yeah in in my own body by myself as opposed into the public body as we all live at the moment isn't that wild that that mark it marked a history that is past yeah. like that you're yeah. now writing something that's definitely i mean you're done with it but writing something that is that distinctly on the on the before side yeah, I think so. I don't know if you do. I think so much about like how much this, I think about other things. I think about the sadness of people who have died and, and you know, all that. But I also think about fiction and like what it means for, um, for contemporary fiction. Is nothing going, nothing can be set in 2020 or 2021 or so far in 2022. Yeah. That's not about the pandemic. Right, or or it appears to be ignoring the main event in in world history. So I, right. I often wonder about that. Like, are you not allowed to, 
or you have to you have to date yourself if you're going to write something contemporary i don't i don't know because it's 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 this quotidian disaster it's every single day it has an effect on how people live as opposed to you know i think if you specifically set a book in november of 2001 it would be weird not to mention the september 11th attacks yeah in america if it was set in america but you wouldn't immediately go well wait why aren't they doing this but you know even now i sometimes read fiction that was written just in the 21st century and i think but where are their masks or do you watch movies sometimes and go oh my god they're breathing all over each other the cell phone there's no cell phone well because this situation would be solved because she'd call someone (laughs) yeah right i I often talk about that just as a older person that like yeah we used to just go to europe and pick a place in amsterdam to meet and no one could you couldn't talk to anyone you just showed up yep and somehow we all worked it out without a cell phone and you know my kids are like what do you what how did the world work yeah yeah it, and there's no way to say it, even if you didn't want to focus it there is no we don't know what the post looks like i don't even know the right word for it if there isn't post is the wrong word right you can't yeah. there is no post there's only altered world that will be that we don't know what that will be what will europe look like what will it be like it, when i was reading a souvenir museum i was like well what if elizabeth went back to any of the places set in that book right now, there's no, I don't even know what that would be. I mean, just like yeah. Legoland in Scandinavia. <laughs> I'm sure Legoland in Denmark is still ticking along. <laughs> that, so that's a story that was written in a fit of peak because we spent a lot of money to go to Legoland. It was, we went with friends and their kid, um, my husband, Edward Carey, our kids, and we all just hated it so much. I think there's a. I think there should be a beautiful word for the parental feeling of sacrificing yourself by going to the altar of unending consumerism because your child wants it, and just the in just the depth of compressed hatred as you step through it, and it's a horror. It it would have been worse if the children had loved it. It was actually a great relief. Oh no, they hated it. Oh, so you got to have like a familial regret. Yeah. Why do you think they hated it when they wanted to go? Weren't they the reason you went? I I think they were. Yes, I'd like to make that very clear. I didn't. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. I had been longing to get a Legoland. Although I think I was interested in it. I think this is actually in in the story. I think they loved Lego. And therefore the word Legoland just sounded like it could be anything you know like the this this world that gave them the feeling that lego gave to them like being surrounded by this thing that's usually in front of you yeah yeah but what happened and i I think we we got there and it was really loud and you had to wait for everything and then later this was originally going to be in the story we went to uh the tivoli gardens in copenhagen which is like a dream amusement park. It is so beautiful and wonderful. And what you would imagine, I think, when you think Danish amusement park is sort of mm-hmm. humane and woodsy and, yeah, woodsy and, is the right word. And the kids know. liked that better? They did. Everybody liked it better, sounds Everybody like. Everybody liked it better. Yeah. It was just better. Well, I'm excited for the new book. When is it coming out again? October 4th, I think. I wonder if you'll be able to do a book tour. It's always an interesting question. Are they, how are publishers talking about it right now about? I think. Are they even talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I I think sort of everybody understands that it would be foolish to make any plans for October one way or the other, because you just don't, we know. Mm As you know, we, we keep uh, going, well, maybe it's almost over. Then, nope. Um, so, I, I mean, I hope so, partly because I really got into 
writing for free plane travel and hotel rooms, which are two of my favorite things. And also because I do, I I like giving readings to people. I just recently gave. I I have to say, it's one of the things I miss the most is to actually be in the room to hear the person who wrote it read their own words, and to be in the room is. I mean, that's you know a lot of what we do in Portland. I'm I'm I miss it I miss it so much. I miss sitting in an audience full of people and having that I miss being in an audience in general, but at readings, you know, having both the individual and the community experience at the same time. Um and I miss giving readings. I just gave a reading which was lovely <clears throat> for Brigham Young University, but it was online and I understood stood my my internet went out and then I used a cell phone as a hotspot and I gave this reading and halfway through the reading I suddenly thought it is possible that my internet is out and there would be no way for me to tell I, mean, I am talking to myself I am just sit- sitting in my bedroom which is where I was delivering this literary reading just talking to myself <laughs> impressed with my own words exactly <laughs> uh, um yeah yeah i miss it i hope i hope to go out and i also i hope to to sit in in an, in an audience store or a auditorium on campus at ut and listen because i'm i i do really miss that there are thoughts that you can only have when you hear somebody else read their work to you Absolutely. I, I, I agree completely. So speaking of, um, one of the things I like to ask everybody when I interview them is I really like to think about um, who would, who are some writers that you would like to shine a, a brighter light on that you are feeling moved by or inspired by? No, no, no pressure. Um, but like, who would you have me interview? Who would you? God, I'm one of those people who would be like, what are you talking about? I've never read a book in my life. No, no, I know other. it puts you on the spot, Elizabeth. I'm sorry, and but so I'm madly looking at uh, my bookshelves and uh, um, thinking, well, it's true. You mentioned Yun Lee, and she's one of my favorite writers. Oh, I love that she was your student. That was so sweet to watch the two of you. When did when was she your student? Was she like an undergrad or no? She was a graduate student at Iowa, ah. and she had she's, I mean, she's a genius. Mm-hmm. She may be one of the only people who went first through the MFA in nonfiction and then through the MFA in fiction. Oh, I didn't know that. And and she'd come to Iowa to be a graduate student in science. She just fell in. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. Yeah. And I, she'd always been a very serious reader and always, I think, wanted to be a writer. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, she's extraordinary. Um and I'm actually, I'm interviewing, uh, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of book events for people in the next. What, where, you're, where you're hosting them when they're reading their yes, work? Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, be, because the model has gone largely to Q&A formats. Yeah. So I always do like it when the author reads a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know why I'm doing so many, but they're all amazing books. Like. I think there were months when I didn't do any last. I wasn't asked to do any, mm-hmm. and then I I got asked to to um, do a Q and A with Antoine Wilson. This book called Mouth to Mouth, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He, he was also a student of mine. And tonight, um, no, not tonight. Tomorrow night, I'm talking to uh, Lan Samantha Chang, who's the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah, who's yeah. An amazing new novel out. Next week, Nina de Gramont for the Christie Affair, which is amazing and is um, a Reese Witherspoon book club book. Um, and then Sarah Manguso, who is one of my favorite living writers, who's mostly written nonfiction. At some point during the pandemic, I reread all of her books and oh. her first novels coming out. And then my colleague, Deb Olenunfrith. Do you know Deb's work? I haven't heard of that. No, I think you would love it. And she's this book that's that's uh, it's been chosen for sort of a, an all Texas book club, um, and she's got a book called Barn Eight, which is about 
think I've heard that title, Barn 8. It's a very strange and wonderful book. And it's it's like a heist book. It's about people who are animal rights activists who decide to kidnap a million hens from battery farms in the Midwest. I've definitely heard about that book. Oh, good. Well, those are some great recommendations. Um, but I think that's this might be a good place to stop. That sound okay? Yes. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, Thank you so much, Robin. Oh, yeah. It was lovely to be with you. I'm just going to turn
You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy jueves 19.